We're in this series, Generosity Reimagined, and we're going to take a look at, uh, well, a story and some what I hope are some helpful hints on how we can settle for less. He was young, affluent, mannerly, maybe even handsome, although we're not told. He had a kind heart, seemed to be well-liked, and was eager to please God. One day when Jesus was teaching, the young man approached the Lord with a sincere question and addressed him as teacher or rabbi. Now, that would suggest to me this morning that he was respectful of Jesus, but was not yet ready to hail him as the Messiah or the Son of God. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life, was his question. The very, the very wording, the way he presented it, suggests that he was confident that he could do whatever the Lord asked him to do to make it into everlasting life. Folks, it is dangerous to be so overconfident in one's ability to please God. Be careful. Jesus responds to his question with a question of his own. It, it, Jesus is basically asking, do, do you really know what you're, you're asking here? Do you understand what you mean when you use your, your words? Matthew 19, 17, Jesus said, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments, his commandments. In other words, only God is good, and keeping his commandments is not to be viewed as some automatic passport into everlasting life. Rather, it is our way of acknowledging God's authority to define what is good and right. And so Jesus says, you want to you do what's good? Then keep the commandments. And so the young man says, well, which ones? And interestingly, Jesus responds with, with those that focus on other relationships. He leaves out the relationship between the man and God. When he looks at the Ten Commandments, this is what he says. Don't kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, honor your parents, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you say, yes, but love your neighbor as yourself isn't one of the Ten Commandments. No, but when Jesus was asked what the most important commandment is, he summarized the entire law by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But since he had taken out the part about loving God, he just focuses in on the love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man responds, he just beams. Really? That's it? I've got this. I've been doing this ever since I was a young kid. And I suspect he genuinely believed that he'd been able to do that as well as anybody else. And so he kind of looks at Jesus, anything else, Lord? Anything else? And it's at this moment that Jesus catches the young man totally off guard. Just when he concludes that this is a piece of cake, Jesus shatters his overconfident attitude. Matthew 19, 21. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Perfect does not mean sinless. It means whole or complete. If you want to be spiritually whole and complete, young man, then get rid of those things that are standing between you and God, and then come follow me. Find a way to truly love your neighbor with what you have, and more importantly, get rid of all that stuff that keeps you from full allegiance 
to God. Sounds pretty tough, doesn't it? But it was his attitude toward his stuff that was keeping him from being fully committed to the Lord. It was keeping him from finding that life everlasting that he so desperately sought. I mean, how could he obey? When you read this story, don't you think, really, Lord, give away everything you got? I mean, I I look at this and I think, "I, I don't know that I could do that. Everything? And Jesus answered the ability to do that with a call to discipleship. He says, you do that, and then you come follow me. Now, the point behind that is, if if you trust me and get rid of all the stuff that's hindering you from being in full allegiance to God, I'm going to take care of everything else that's, that's important in your life. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, seek my kingdom first, and all these things shall be added unto you. He didn't promise all our wants, but he said, I'll take care of you. I'll get you there. He would have taken care of this young man. And here's the other thing. Once you start following Jesus, you you sort of, well, the other stuff just isn't as important when that priority is in the right place. Now, I like stories with happy endings. Those are my favorite. This one doesn't have a happy ending says the young man turned away, walked off, basically because he was more in love with his wealth than he was with God. He was more attached to golden coins than golden streets. The apostles are watching this happen. They are shocked by Jesus' response to the young man, much like we are shocked when we read this story. (laughs) And they, they basically say, well, then, Lord, who in the world can be saved? And Jesus said in verse 26, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Here's, Here's Jesus' point. It's impossible to get there by one's good deeds. But God is good enough, and God is gracious enough to make the impossible for us a reality for us. The young man who was so overconfident that he could do whatever was needed to inherit eternal life would not do what Jesus asked. His allegiance was elsewhere. Now, most of us rationalize this story when we read it by thinking this. God wants rich people to do this, and I'm not rich, so I'm off the hook. Now, if those thoughts are going through your mind, you're wrong on both counts. This is not a blanket statement about rich people getting rid of all of their wealth. This was a specific statement to a young man whose wealth was the hindrance, the roadblock, the barrier to him becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And second of all, you're wrong on the account if you're not rich, because by the world's standards, everybody in this room is rich this morning. So, what does this say to us? Well, may I suggest that it sets the stage for us to consider any attitude that hinders full allegiance to God. That's what this story is about. To sum it all up, get rid of anything, any attitude, any focus, any priority that keeps us from having a full allegiance to God. So our challenge this morning is taking an honest look at how we can settle for less so that nothing of this world competes with our allegiance to following God. So what will it take for me to be spiritually whole and complete? How can I use what I have to love my neighbor as myself and help me find a new identity in Christ and not my identity in my things? 
I'll warn you, settling for less and simplifying our lives is not easy to do since we live in a time of great complexity. Let me tell you what I mean. Americans are involved in relationally complex experiences. Our society is filled with blended families of multiple marriages with joint custody of children or grandparents raising their grandchildren out of necessity, not necessarily out of choice. Making ends meet for some families is nearly impossible, especially if if it's a single parent home without the external extended family support and help, and sometimes they don't have that. And the stress of these relationships, whole and broken, makes our lives in this culture a very complicated thing. We are relationally complicated and complex. Our lives are vocationally complex. 20% of the country relocates every year. 20%. Recent college graduates will have 10 different employers prior to their retirement and will work in three different distinct vocations. That's complex. Our culture is financially complex. People are working many hours at many jobs to meet financial obligations. The urge to splurge continues to surge as Americans spend everything they have and then some. Consider the following. The total debt load of American consumers is $12.85 trillion. Trillion dollars. The average household with credit card debt pays nearly $1,300 in credit card interest every year. That's spread out over all of us. Even those of you who don't use credit cards or those of you who pay it off at the end of the month. $1,300 in interest every year. The average family spends $400 more than it earns every year. How do we keep that up? 23% of the average person's take-home pay is already committed to payments, debt payments, not counting mortgage, utilities, and other necessities. The average credit card debt carried by a college student is $3,200. A graduate student is carrying on average $7,800 debt load on credit card. And get this. We spend more on trash bags than 90% of the, than 90% of the world's 210 countries spend for everything. Is that not crazy? Our homes are technologically complex. It is more likely than not that you have more phone numbers than people in your house. The average family has, of three, will have 15 phone numbers. That's probably true. If you still have a landline, you get that number. If you have a cell phone, you have that number. If you work at a job, you probably have at least one or two numbers for your work. There may be some other number that you have. You may have more than one cell phone. You start looking at the number of, of phone numbers per your own life. It is, it's just astronomical. Growing up, I remember my first home telephone number, 648. That was it. You couldn't dial. We didn't have dial. I remember when rotary dial first came, you picked up the phone and you called the operator. And you asked for the other three-digit number in our hometown. That was, now we've got more numbers than people that live in the household. 
Many have a computer, a cell phone, a tablet, a few email addresses, Facebook account, Twitter account, Instagram account, personal blog, and maybe your own website. Your daughter or granddaughter can now sell her Girl Scout cookies on her own website. Thousands of items are auctioned off through eBay every minute of the day. You text your son to tell him it's time for supper and he's just upstairs, but he'll respond to the text quicker than he'll respond to your voice. <laughs> Our homes are technologically complex. And if you're still not convinced about the complexity of life today, consider this. The intellectual content of an entire lifetime of someone who lived in the 6th century, that's King Arthur's day, could be contained in one Sunday issue of the New York Times. We are bombarded by information at a flow that makes it like drinking from a fire hydrant, and it is overwhelming, it is complex, and it makes our lives stressful. Is it any wonder we feel stressed, harried, and haggard most of the time? Throughout the last century, we tried to invent and create new ways to simplify our lives and reduce stress only to create more of it. The, the personal computer was designed to reduce the work week by several hours. It was assumed back then that by the time we reached the 21st century, we would have a shorter work week and that people would be less stressed. But here we are, 17 years into the new century, and just the opposite has happened. We are not working less. But even if you're not working more, your family schedule and your routine has become ever more complicated. Every night of the week is busy for many families. It's sports, school programs, church activities, entertainment opportunities, and the list goes on. It used to be a couple nights a week. Now it's almost every night of the week. Just having supper together for some families is a task to figure out. Now, if there's anyone in this room that is not interested in simplifying his or her life, you are free to go right now. Just make your way out the doors. Don't have to listen to the rest of the sermon. Or if there's someone here who would say, bring it on. I like being the biggest rat in the race. Then scurry on out, all right? You don't have to listen to the rest of this either. I contend that God did not create our lives to be so fragmented and hectic. Work hard? Yes. Be committed to what you do, of course. Be wise in your finances, without a doubt. Avoid laziness, certainly. Be torn and pulled in all different directions at the same time, not a chance. That's never been God's plan. So how do, how do we deal with all this complexity? Well, let me read a passage from one of my favorite New Testament books, the book of Philippians. I think it speaks to the heart of this very issue of learning to simplify and prioritizing life so that we can make the most of who we are, what we have for the kingdom of God first and for loving our neighbors second. Philippians chapter 4 verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Would you read the last line out loud with me together? I can do everything through him who gives me strength. 
Now, just like the Lord's response to the young man, this passage runs contrary to the natural ambitions of life. We want to satisfy our every whim. It's, it's, that, it's that way from day one, folks. A baby cries when he or she needs food or needs changing or just wants attention. Here's the problem. We just keep adding to the infant cry list as we grow older, and it doesn't take long for our list of wants to grow way out of proportion with what God wants us to be. So how do I become spiritually whole and complete? How do I eliminate those things that hinder me from keeping my priorities straight? How do I become a Christian who truly reflects Jesus Christ in everything I do and everywhere I go? How do I learn to settle for less? Well, simply put, put this, put this passage into practice. Do what this passage teaches us to do. And you say, well, what does it teach? Thank you for asking. Let me spell it out for you. Here's the first thing. Be thankful for every gift. You, you probably realize this in, uh, already, but in part, Paul's letter to the Philippians is a thank you note. Now, good manners dictates that if somebody gives you a gift, you respond with a thank you note. That's the proper way to do things. Paul writes to the Philippians and says, I know you've wanted to help me for a long time and you haven't had the ability to do so. Now you have, and now you've shared in my ministry. I am so grateful. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And we don't know what the gift was. We don't know how much it was. That's not the point. It doesn't matter how much or how little. It's the fact that it's a gift of partnership in his ministry. And Paul writes this beautiful letter, including this note of thanks. We would do well that if on a daily basis we would start remembering to be thankful for every gift. Now, hear me. A gift really includes everything. You know this as well as I do. I've learned the best lessons in the tough moments, the moments I don't like, the moments I don't want to go back and repeat, but that's where I've learned my best lessons. May not admit it, but I know inside that's my best learning. So even the tough moments are a gift for which I am thankful or should be. You see, we forget to practice our thankfulness. And Paul teaches us here to be thankful for every gift that comes along. Cecil Conrad was hunkered down in a shallow foxhole somewhere north of Seoul, Korea, during the Korean conflict. And suddenly the world just seemed to explode in his face. He thought he'd been hit by a hard chunk of frozen sod that hit his helmet. But when he reached up to touch his helmet, it, <laughs> it wasn't a chunk of sod that had hit him. It was actually a shell, a huge shell that should have actually taken off his head. But instead, just by the sheer angle, the shell had caught the front of his helmet, cut through the helmet, and then arced up and over and off of his helmet. He had a severe bruise on his forehead. He had a major headache. But Cecil Conrad lived. He still has that helmet to remind him to be thankful for everything that happens in life. I don't have a helmet like that. You probably don't either. But God's word reminds us that we are to be thankful for everything that comes along. And when you foster an attitude of thankfulness, it, well, it just helps prepare the way for settling for less. Here's something else. Be content in every situation. Notice Paul's words. 
I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I love that. I know what it is to have to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Now, that's a treasure. Contentment is difficult to come by in our culture because our culture offers so much glitz and glitter. I read about a couple who had grown weary of the home in which they had lived. They'd lived there for years. They decided to put it on the market. They called a realtor and uh, had the company come out, analyze the home, take pictures. You know what realtors do. And so they came out, and when the couple saw the ad and saw the picture in the brochure, they looked at it and read it. They looked at each other and said, that's exactly the kind of home we're looking for. (laughs) So they took the home off the market and decided to stay. Sometimes it's not what we have or don't have. It's the attitude that makes all the difference. And when you can refocus the attitude, suddenly contentment comes. Remember this. Remember this. Contentment makes a poor person rich. Discontentment makes a rich person poor. Let me suggest a few ways that we can grow in contentment. Slow down. Slow down a little bit. That's easier said than done. I'm not patient behind a slow-moving vehicle in front of me. But when I pass, I notice that the occupants often seem to be enjoying the journey and the scenery. Maybe, just maybe, I'd be better off if I slowed down and enjoyed the journey more as well. How about you? Would you be better off if you enjoyed the journey and the scenery and weren't so rushed to get where you're going? Here's something else. Move over. So slow down. Move over. Let the world pass you by. You don't have to stay up with the people around you who are spending themselves into oblivion to have the latest, newest, and the shiniest Watson in the neighborhood. When we learn to be content with what we have, we will be happier. Now, obviously, folks, things wear out, uh, and things we have no longer meet our needs. Things, at times, need to be replaced. I get that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this insatiable quest that whenever something new is out there, we've got to have it immediately. And oftentimes when we do that, we make unwise financial decisions. We get in over our heads and then the stress builds and the discontentment builds and the frustration builds and our lives just, well, they they just aren't what they ought to be. So move over into the slow lane. Slow down a little bit, move over, let the world pass you by, it's okay. It's okay. And then cheer up. Cheer up. Stress and happiness are at odds with one another. They do not inhabit the same life at the same time. When I am stressed, I'm not happy. When I'm happy, it's generally because I'm not at that moment feeling any stress. You know what I mean? These two cannot get along together in the same heart and mind at the same moment. With the holiday season upon us, watch out for disgruntled attitudes and those who have grown weary of spreading tidings of good cheer in the weeks ahead. Isn't it interesting? This this season that is supposed to bring such wonderful joy, by the time we get two-thirds of the way through it, on our way to Christmas, sometimes the weariness, stress, and anxiety has just built up. We have forgotten to cheer so start looking through life, at life through the lens of joy. Work hard at maintaining a positive attitude. Take time to do some fun things. Laugh more. 
Spend more energy on your relationships than your real estate. Invest more energy in serving than spending. Spend some time around little children. They are so good at being cheerful. They smile more. They laugh easily. They love unconditionally. They forgive quickly. If you're having a hard time, spend a little time around a small child and be reminded of what God wants us to be. The other day I was outside with our youngest granddaughter, Taylor, who will be three next month. We took a walk in the woods. I held her hand. We identified the different trees. We looked at the different colors, leaves. We, we examined all these little berries that come on weedy kind of plants. Then I held the bird feeders while she filled them up with seed. We, we even watched an earthworm burrow its way back into the soil. Do you know how long it's been since I've watched an earthworm go all the way down into the soil and disappear? And when we walked hand in hand back into the house, I had zero stress. Contentment flowed out of my granddaughter. She cheered my heart. I'm a better person when I spend time around children because they know the secret to contentment. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, the bitter does not last forever and the sweet never fills the cup to overflowing. It is enough if you don't freeze in the cold and if thirst and hunger don't claw at your insides, if your back isn't broken, if your feet can walk and your arms can bend, if both eyes can see, if both ears hear, then whom shall you envy? That's contentment. So when you're feeling the stress of competing culture and the glitz and the glitter, remember these six words, slow down, move over, cheer up. Lastly, be faithful to him who can make you strong. Folks, life is not like your DVR. You cannot fast forward through the parts you don't like. Paul understood that better than most, thus his powerful words. I've had lots, I've had little. I've been free, I've been prisoner. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. True contentment in a simplified life will never come until Jesus becomes the priority of our lives. When you truly begin to model a life based on the principle, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, then you will begin to discover what Paul found both in a thriving tent business before and a Roman prison afterwards. For Paul, you see, it was all about Jesus. It should be for us, but it remains a little bit more challenging for most of us. It's been several years now, but the memory is still fresh in my mind. When I had the privilege of going to India with Brad and a team from here, on the last Saturday night I was in <clears throat> India, I preached, had the privilege of preaching for a small congregation in Sagar, India. Now, now Sagar is a, is a university town, kind of like Bloomington. And before the service, we went out to a, a, a place uh, where the preacher and some of the leaders and the preacher's wife, they took us and showed us this small plot of ground that the church had sacrificed and bought. And they were going to build a building there to the glory of God, to use it as a place of worship and out of which they would minister their community. And they were so excited. I got excited because of their excitement. Sometime later, back in the States, I got word that the preacher's neighbors had lied about him to the police. 
the police had come, hauled him to the marketplace. In front of a large hotel there in the marketplace, he was beaten so badly he could not walk. The police left him to fend for himself or to die there. He did not die. And he did not throw in the towel. For him, it was all about Jesus. Whether he could walk or he couldn't walk. Because he knew he could do all things through Christ who gives him strength. There were no hindrances to this man's allegiance to Jesus Christ. So here's your assignment for this week. Our assignment for this week. Find something that you can get rid of in your life that will free you up to love Christ more. That will free up more resources that you can share for the work of the kingdom around the world. That will free up more time that you can give to someone else in need in the name of Jesus Christ. Start with something small. Don't sell the family farm this week, okay? Just start with something small. Slow down. Move over. Cheer up. Because you see, generosity reimagined begins when we simplify. And Jesus provides the only strength that we really need. And he'll invite us to come. Follow me. You put me first. I'll take care of everything. So be thankful for every gift. Be content with who you are and what you have. Be strong in the Lord and in his strength. Because that's really all we need to handle the things of this life. Settle for less. And he'll provide you with more than you can imagine. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know that you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.